1: Video does nothing for us, trust me.
2: <laughs> oh, like me, you have faces for radio, right? Yes.
0: <laughs> and a voice for silent film. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's one of the best jokes you've ever made, John. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the continued podcast adventures of Superhero Speak.
2: But I think many of the people that love this character and that love superheroes in
1: general... Have used these stories as inspiration to say, you know what, I'm going to do something good in the world. I'm going to make a difference, like my heroes when I was a kid. That is
0: my fondest memory of it, because when you, when you're doing comic books, you want them to affect people, right? You want people to care. You want you want to strike
2: emotions, and I knew that that Clone Saga was striking a lot of emotions.
0: Can you imagine yeah. Pulp Fiction starring Goofy and Mickey Mouse?
2: I can totally imagine that. <laughs> I'm Don't sure somebody's call the quarter pounder with cheese in France, Mickey What? <laughs> oh yeah, with cheese, Mickey. Yeah. I can totally see. see? I, I would I would watch the hell out of that movie.
0: Yes, I gladly saw sacrifice at
1: my
2: my progeny to you, a mighty marvel beast.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but Neil Adams is somewhere going, hmm? It's my time. Uh, <laughs> How do you measure success? Hey, everyone. You are listening to Superhero Speak, and I'm your host, Dave. And John. And this week, boys and girls, JD is off on special assignment, uh, but we brought in a very special guest with us this week. He is a prolific comic book writer. Uh, he has worked on such titles as The Punisher. Um and of course, Savage Tales, of course, and Robin, but I believe he's probably best known for, and he might correct me on this, as uh, the co creator of Bane uh, from the Batman books. So, without further ado, of course, I'm talking about the one and only Chuck Dixon. How are you doing, sir? I am doing very well. Thank you.
2: Good and, to be uh, here.
0: Good to be here. Yeah,
2: thanks.
1: So, uh, here, here's the, the main question What was your favorite? Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> I mean, forget the other stuff. We got to get that. to the important things, right?
0: Yeah, no,
2: that's important. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess just because they showed it so often, that the one with Harrison Ford, I like that one.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I caught that one. Yeah. Where he's yelling at the dog, and the dog. Yeah. It, there was a Amazon Alexa
0: one. <laughs> yeah. I liked the, the Bud Light commercial with the Game of Thrones twist at the end. Like, you weren't expecting it. <laughs>
2: yeah. I might have left room for that one. I don't remember that.
0: Oh, one. oh, so, so it starts off like they had the Bud Light commercial earlier in the, in the Super Bowl. They were trying to deliver the corn syrup, uh, to the other beer companies. <laughs> and so they have the same guy who was like the head of Bud Light. Now they're at a, uh, like a joust. And uh all of a sudden the one of the, the Bud Light knight gets knocked off his horse by the mountain. And the mountain grabs his head and then all of a sudden a dragon comes out of nowhere and uh breathes fire and it's like Game of Thrones, uh coming on HBO it was like, <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah, I did I, see the I did see the one with the
2: uh Bud Light with the Trojan horse uh set like Three thousand years after the Trojan Horse, but uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody at Bud opened a uh, history book recently. So, no, no, no.
1: I, actually, the Harrison Ford one you mentioned, I was surprised Harrison Ford didn't die at the end. <laughs> Did
0: you, uh, I mean, you're you're originally from Philly, yeah. So, who were you rooting for?
2: Um. Well, I don't know. I kind of wanted to see the Patriots win just because everybody else didn't. I you thought know? <laughs> <laughs> they gotta have they gotta have somebody on their side outside of everybody in Boston. So,
1: well, mostly New England. I mean, I'm, yeah, yeah, true. I'm originally from Connecticut, so it was always either the Giants or the Patriots. Ah. but you know, I, I guess, I guess they'll, I guess they'll let other people have a shot at it when they the monkey's paw runs out. Whatever they used to. <laughs> well, what is it? Nine times in the last 23 games? Uh, it's yeah. crazy.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. But, you know, hey, I remember when it was the Dallas Cowboys, so everybody hated that. <laughs> mm.
0: uh, well, at least we won last year, right? Did, you? Did we? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Did we really?
1: What
2: is winning? <laughs> I'll tell you, of all the comics podcasts I've ever done, this is the weirdest. We're talking about sports.
0: Yeah, he, it's because... Historically, it's right before, our weak point. So right before John got on, he was watching all the... He didn't watch the game last night. He was watching all the commercials. That's why it was right on his mind. Um, okay, so here. I only watch so I'd be able to talk to my sons. So, uh, so a question that we do kind of normally start off on is... Uh, Have you always wanted to work in comics? I can't remember, honestly, a time I didn't
2: want, that I wanted to do anything else. I always wanted to do something in comics. It's, it's in my genetic structure.
0: Did you, uh, so did you go to school for writing or? No, my god, no. No, I wanted to be a writer,
2: (laughs) uh, so I didn't go to school for it. (laughs) <laughs> uh, i i i didn't go to school and i didn't read writing magazines or books on how to write or whatever um, uh early on i got some really great advice to just read a lot and then read criticism of what you've just read and that'll teach you everything you need to know about writing hmm.
0: So. Hmm. i i i've never heard that before but that's actually not bad advice it's kind yeah, of yeah. the
1: opposite when you write, because when you write, you don't want to read criticism of what you just wrote, because it will teach. No. You. <laughs> <laughs> don't,
2: don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. Yeah. yeah. So, so. The the other great piece of advice I got was don't don't ever write down your last idea of the day, because that's where you're going to begin tomorrow. So you never sit down with nothing on your mind. You sit down knowing, you know exactly what you're going to write. So.
1: Ah, okay. I'm taking I'm taking notes.
2: <laughs> that's because that's that's these are all the forestall writer's block. You know, you can talk yourself into writer's block, uh, and you you can't do that. It's poisonous. Right.
0: Oh yeah, no. Have, have you? I, had, I think we've all been there. Have you
1: dealt with writer's block before?
2: Not really, because I followed my own advice. <laughs> <laughs> Plus I've been lucky to work on various different projects all at once, so if I'm stuck on one I just jump over to the other. And I can always make progress and I stay way ahead of deadline so that I've got time to do that if I want to. I mean I don't I don't have a crushing deadline schedule because I, I, I beat my deadlines to death.
1: Well that doesn't seem right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, that's why that's why I didn't get along with anybody at Marvel. Uh, so, <laughs> oh, no, I, I, you know I, that's only funny because it's true. Um, one of my <laughs> one of my editors, uh, Tim Tui, great editor on Punisher War Journal, uh, he handed in an, an entire issue, colored and ready to go, ninety days before it was due at Marvel, and, and everyone hated him uh, because you know it was me and Gary Quapis, and we were like on a roll on Punisher, and we were just cranking out issue after issue. And, We were so far ahead of schedule, everybody at Marvel despised us. (laughs) I I remember times at Marvel. I'll never forget this. I was at Marvel, and in the bullpen were two editors. They weren't even bullpen guys, and they were both coloring the same cover. One was starting at the top, and the other was starting at the bottom because it was so close to deadline. It literally had to be out the door before the watercolors on it were even dry. Oh, wow. No, but that's how they, that's how they roll at Marvel. And apparently from what I hear, they still do. It's just, that's just Marvel. That's just how they do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, so, so I was wondering what the, um, before you were at Marvel, you worked at Comico? Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in Norristown. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought that sounded familiar. Was that your first comic book job or?
2: No, no. My first comic book job was with a little company called Countrywide, and they were up in New York City. And okay. they published things like Jaws of Death magazine and 44 Magnum magazine, anything that was, like, slightly popular at the time, they made a magazine, a really cheap jack magazine about. And they published Punk magazine, which actually was kind of a seminal book about, you know, the CBGB area era up there hmm. in New the park. Uh, so that was actually legitimate, uh, you know. Uh, and Pump kind of lends itself to Cheap Jack, so that was cool. And they, they wanted to do – they saw that sales figures on heavy metal early on, and they wanted to do a, a knockoff of heavy metal called GASM. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so well, subtle. Yeah, subtle. Uh, so I worked <laughs> on the first three issues. I uh, I wrote and penciled and inked and lettered my own comics. And at the first meeting, they said, can you do 11 pages by next Friday? And I said, "Well, what do you want the story to be about?" And the guy said, "I want 11 pages by next Friday."
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> oh.
2: so it was 40. It was 40 bucks a page for everything. I just told you, uh, writing, lettering, just 40 bucks. And I was in Hog Heaven because I was getting paid to do comics. And uh, that was my first work, and it was probably 79.
0: So, ah, have you uh, have you done any art since then?
2: Uh, I did a, a one-shot book during the black and white glut in the 80s for a clip called Radio Boy. It was, a, it was a, a manga satire. Okay. And I penciled it, and uh, the Jim Angle uh, legendary cartoonist inked it. Uh, so it looked great. And then I did, um, I did one pin-up for a Batman anim- animated uh, issue. I think it was like issue 50 <laughs> that Rick Birch inked. So, yeah, I, I rarely do art. Our- oh, I, I did a pin-up for Spawn. Because my buddy, um, my buddy Tim Harkins really needed work, and Tom McFarland was paying ridiculous rates for pinups, and 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 Tim really needed work, and uh, he inked it. He's another great cartoonist. Oh, cool! Yeah, but Ooh, but I, I never, know. I never, I never, you know, put the the uh, the work into actually being a really good cartoonist that that you know, really good cartoonists needed to do. So right, right,
0: okay, and then. Um Something else was kind of curious. You, you had mentioned Punisher earlier. Yeah. Um, did you? Was that something you wanted to work on, or were you geared towards it? Because a lot of people love your Punisher run. So
2: Punisher, that some, Punisher and that was on
1: War Journal. So
2: well, yeah. Was, I, I did War Journal, War Zone, and Love Punisher. I, I did them all. And in fact, you know, just before all three books were canceled, I was writing all three of them. Um, but yeah, that's 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 one of the only times I campaigned to write characters I really loved the character and I really thought I was a fit and um, I remember the first time I met Mike Barron uh, his last words to me before we parted were you'll never write the Punisher because he was the Punisher writer (laughs)
0: Uh,
2: and Mike and I are friends so uh, I don't know how friendly he was toward me then, because he was trying to get work doing the Punisher but um, but yeah I, I felt uh, an affinity for Frank Castle
0: yeah oh. no because I, I one of the reasons I ask um, is when you were writing when you first started writing war journal uh, I believe it was then is my cousin was a big Punisher fan and he actually said that um, you know he stopped reading the regular title at the time I was reading your stuff because he said oh. it was the best that wow. you know he had read oh cool well, thank you for me when you see me. Cool. I will. I'm gonna tell him you were you know the guest and he'll finally listen to an episode <laughs> <laughs>
1: what what was what was the aspect about uh, Frank castle that that drew you I mean he said you felt an affinity for him but you know what exactly what was it, it that he was like alone in a fight or that he was well, just he, like to take punishment or
2: he was um he was a slob hero you know uh you know, the, the, the slob hero in American culture goes, you know, back to like Bogart and, mm. and that goes up to like Bruce Willis, you know, just, just the everyday guy, you know, who gets wrong. And, you know, he didn't have superpowers or anything like that. And, um, because of his training and you know, probably a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, uh, he turns to, uh, you know, the psychotic reaction of going to war against crime. And that just, that and the guns you know I, lo- I like that stuff and i've always liked the uh, you don't know who you're messing with story you know and uh also I, what it drew me and i realized this in recent years what drew me too was he's kind of a heel <laughs> he's, he's not a nice guy and, that, no. and and mike Barron really brought that out i mean everybody else had him killing and knifing and stabbing people but Mike Barron had him being horrible to his friends, you know. And I thought, oh my god, this is a whole new dimension to this character I never thought about. You know, he he wouldn't be, you know, he wouldn't feel the need to be nice to anyone, you know, unless he would manipulate people to help him in his struggle. But beyond that, he didn't need people. He was, you know, his family was gone and he was alone, and he was fine with that.
0: Right? Yeah. I mean, that aspect kind of makes sense for the character, when it's that whole, he's been betrayed by the world, so he can't trust anyone. He doesn't want to get close to anyone, because he's just going to get hurt again, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. and Baron did this great, he did did this great story where, basically, Punisher is seeking aid from the people who have allied themselves with him, and every time one of them fails to give him what he needs, he's like, well, then what use are you to me? And I was like, man, oh man, that is cold. But, Hmm. But you know, it really brought the character to total focus for me, and you know, uh, I you know, I work in Mike's shadow on on the book, so
0: yeah. And then, uh, and then you moved on to DC after Punisher, yeah. Um, And of course, how are their deadlines? (laughs)
2: Yeah, how are their deadlines? (laughs) Well, deadlines at DC meant something. I mean, you you had Bob Greenberger who would actually send out deadline sheets every month. So that you knew where you had to be. And um, uh, I, I was there about a year, and I and I didn't get them. Uh, I, I noticed, hey, I haven't gotten those deadline sheets from Greenberger. And uh, I called him, and I said, hey, Greeny, why haven't I seen any deadline sheets? And he says, well, hey, you blow past all of them anyway. What's the point of sending them to <laughs> <laughs> but, And it was true. By the time I got the deadline sheet, I'd already written all the issues on it anyway. <laughs>
0: And uh, was was the Robin miniseries the first thing you did over at DC or?
2: Yeah, yeah, I got okay. I got uh, approached by uh, I think I think Dan Raspler was Denny's assistant at the time. He called me and said that Denny wanted to meet with me uh, with the idea in mind that I, I'd do something with this new this new Robin character. And uh, the only time I'd ever been with Denny before was I had an interview with his then assistant, who I can't even remember who that was. And then he was in the room and ignored me the whole time, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I thought, you know, I'm, I, I didn't click there. And uh, But then he had read uh, my Airboy comic I had been doing for clips, and he liked the way I wrote a teenage character. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't write them like, uh, uh, you know, I was using slang from my childhood. <laughs> applying it to them, I want, you know, I, I just wrote them naturally. I didn't, I, I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to be hip or cool with the character, and, and he liked that approach. He thought it'd be a good fit for Tim, so uh, I went up to New York and, you know, met with him and we talked it over. And I was actually reticent at first because like, I, I always like to make sure I'm going to do a good job and I have a full understanding of, of things before I jump in. I don't just say yes to a job, and and uh, but he explained. Everything, you know, his, all his thoughts about Robin and, and why that character was needed in the Batman universe and, and his purpose and, and why it was important that they get it right this time after Jason Todd had been such a huge failure. And uh, so, you know, I agreed to do it because, you know, uh, you know, Denny was going to mentor me through it.
1: Cool. That was, that was one of those ones that had a lot of different covers. If yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah i've got I've got a few in my basement right now. I still have copies of that actually
2: yeah I think there's there's copies everywhere that thing mm. was that, they went they went back to press so much on that first miniseries, and particularly the second mini series mm. that you know it was reprinted in every permutation imaginable
0: mm.
2: I mean I would go up to d c and the the uh, circulation guy would come running out to the elevator banks to meet me. We're going back to press <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were so happy. <laughs> Because initially, so, initially, you know, I said, "What do you think this is going to sell?" You know, just curious. I mean, what are your expectations for this? And they said, ah, "It'll probably do about as well as the uh, the Catwoman launch, which was, <laughs> which was 175 thousand copies." And you know, mm-hmm. we were like, "My God, I can't. I don't even know how many." Dude, we were way up there.
0: And uh, so, I'm curious too. You know, at the time, I don't even think people thought of Robin as a you know. On his own kind of a, a character. Yeah. So so, so when, you, when you're approached and say, do a Robin miniseries, not a Batman and Robin miniseries, a Robin miniseries, like what kind of things go through your head?
2: Well, that's kind of what I discussed with Denny. I mean, I was right up front with him. I said, I don't see the reason for Robin, you know, because the fans always like Batman on his own. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and Denny explained that, well, the, in this case, the fans are wrong. Uh, because when Batman's on his own, sales go down. (laughs) So, so someone out there likes Robin Mm -hmm. and, and he said also Robin and Alfred were necessary to the Batman mythos because they grounded Bruce Wayne in a reality, uh, where he actually had a, a quote unquote family that he was responsible for. He had someone to come home to. He said, without those two characters, he's just some psycho running around on the rooftops. And, and and it's hard to care about someone like that long term, and right. so you know you give him responsibilities in a family and people who care about him, and then you know that makes the character more well rounded. And then and I said to Denny, I said you know you're right because thinking about it, all of my favorite Batman stories, Robin is a key figure in them. because one of my favorites is Strangest Costumes of the Batman, which is actually a Robin story, and I borrowed mm-hmm. heavily from it for uh, Robin Miniseries Two. And then, you know, Robin dies at dawn. I mean, it goes on and on. All my favorite Batman stories have Robin in them. So, uh, you know, I was a fan. You guys are fans. Sometimes we're wrong.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That is very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: If you always get what you want, you wouldn't be happy.
0: Yes. No, no. I mean, and that's, you know, I think that's the important job of, you know, writers and editors to sit there and go, you know, let's give a left turn to this character that they're not expecting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to give the readers what they want and what they expect, but not exactly in the way they expected it. Right. Right. You've got to be true to the core of the characters.
0: And then, uh, of course, you know, shortly after that, uh, you helped create Bane. Yeah. And one of people's favorite Batman villains to this day, um, so, so like, every time I've read about his creation, it was Denny's O'Neill's uh, idea, um, and you were the first one to write a story with him. Well,
2: the, the, going in to Nightfall, uh, Denny had laid out Nightfall, and our first Nightfall summit was like three days. You know, spent mm. closeted all of us together. <clears throat> while well, Denny explained. Um, oh, we were closeted in a very nice place. It's this fabulous resort up on the Hudson. It's, real, it's back when they. It's back when they spent money on us. Uh, they, 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 uh, the uh, uh, Denny had Nightfall pretty much mapped out. Or, I don't mean pretty much mapped out. He had it mapped out. I mean, he knew it was a two year thing, and, and, and these were the steps. These were the dramatic high points. Here was what was going to happen. And, uh, it was our job to fill all that in and dramatize it, just turn it into a hell of a story. And, um, at that, we, that retreat ended with us knowing we needed a brand-new villain, knowing that he was addicted to Venom, knowing that he was Batman's intellectual and physical equal, and that's all we knew. And we didn't name him or do any thinking about him because that first retreat was all about the issues leading up to Nightfall. All of the work we were doing laying the groundwork for Nightfall that the readers had no idea we were doing, that they didn't know we were all working in one direction together. And then um, before the second retreat, well, we needed this guy filled in, you know. So we had a kind of a mini-meeting, a two-day mini-meeting. <coughs> uh, Denny and a lot of the creators actually came to my hometown because my wife was eight months pregnant. I was like, I can't leave her. So they <laughs> came to my town, uh, well, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is where I was living at the time. And they they came there, and we had had meetings. And um, I, I stressed at the meeting how important it was that this character work because – I didn't feel that the guy who had killed Superman worked as a villain because nobody cared if they ever saw him again.
1: Doomsday, yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and and you know because he was just a big animal brute. You know nothing wrong. It worked for the story, but for our purposes, we wanted a we wanted a guy with some legs, and because uh, you know, Denny insisted on it to be a new villain, and he worked. And I said, well, you know, it's hard to make a guy work. It's hard to make a guy popular. You know, Wolverine was an afterthought. You know, Silver Surfer was an afterthought. You know, these, these, you know, and the fans latched onto them. Um, I said, you know, we're really going to have to work hard to make this guy into something. And then he said, well, if you think it's going to be so damn hard, then you do it.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, he basically sent me home and I knew Graham Nolan would be doing the art. And he sent me home to, uh, you know, create Bane, who at that point in time, his working name was Doc Toxic. Uh, mm-hmm. so, wow.
1: Yeah, that would not have,
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I went home and, you know, I thought, well, he's addicted to venom. Maybe he was the, I think Denny might even have suggested this, that he was an early subject for venom experiments. And I said, well, in that case, he probably would have been a prisoner. And then I thought, well, okay, he's a prisoner. He he lives in a prison. And I thought, well, what if he was born in prison? He's serving his father's life sentence for something his dad did. And his dad's a mystery figure. And I, I just read an article in Wall Street Journal about how in North Korea you can actually be sentenced to a relative's crime, if they can't catch the relative, you know you do the time. And I thought, well, man, guy born in prison. I mean, how how effed up would he be by the time he comes into our story? And it, and, it, and it was a good analogy or a parallel to, to Bruce Wayne, you know, this horrible childhood trauma. Except in Bane's case, the child with trauma goes on into adulthood. He's living in this hellhole, and um, and then I came up with the name Bane by using Roger's Thesaurus. I just looked up evil. And, and there was Bane and I mm-hmm. called them early on and I said, look, the character's name is going to be Bane and, and everybody hated it. I <laughs> said, just, just let it sink into your brain for a couple of days. And they didn't even, that was it. He was Bane. You know, a few days later they were calling him Bane. And, uh, and I talked to Graham quite a bit on the phone about his look and discussed story stuff with him. Cause Graham's a burgundy writer as well. And, um, you know, we discussed, and Graham came up with a suggestion to have the Me- the Mexican wrestler look, the Luchadora look. Yeah. And that cemented it. You know, that really cemented him in my mind. He's going to be this, you know, big, big, you know, good-looking Hispanic guy. You know, uh, you know sort of like a, a beefier Bruce Wayne. And then visually, I was able to go on from there. So, and that's how it happened. And, my God, you know, look what happened. I'm still, I still can't get my head around it.
0: So, <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that you told that that full story because it gives a lot of context. Um, and and maybe this is just my crazy mind, but has anyone ever compared Bane to Venom from the Spider-Man books?
2: Um, no, but I have in my mind. Uh, okay, sort of a there's definitely a comparison there. There's kind of a correlation between the two. Uh, as far as the threat they present to the hero, right? So,
0: uh, right, and they're both—they're both big, intimidating villains, you know.
2: And they're uh, also—they're also
0: two, the, the, the two
2: recent examples of villains who stuck.
0: Yes, and that's the other thing, right? They were both brought in more modern times, but yet yeah. people really mm-hmm. latched onto them, and they became very popular characters. Yeah, because yeah, even Thanos, you can go back
2: to the seventies. You know, uh and for Batman you can go back to the forties.
0: So. Right. Yes, so, and it, it's it's fitting that they Tom Hardy played both of them. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. There's another correlation. There you go. <laughs> so, so when
1: when they took you guys and put you put you away to start working on the storyline they, I mean, this this was the the storyline was at that point we're going to like nearly kill Bruce Wayne. The- yeah,
2: we're we're, we're, going, we're going to break his back. That was specific, and he's oh. gonna be he's gonna be out of action, and for a long time we're not gonna see him at all, and and then he's going to have to pick a replacement, and then of course created Azrael, and and uh, he had the replacement in mind, and he says the replacement will be flawed, but the readers won't see that first. They won't see that. And it's going to be a horrible mistake, and then um, you know, but and Batman, but Batman still can't fully return because he's wounded, and so um, uh, and, you know he can't fully return full time to the role of, of, of Batman, and so Dick Grayson would then take over. So all of this was all from the beginning. We knew all of it.
1: So they, they, so they had already decided. I mean, because that at the time that was kind of radical, right? I mean, there weren't. I don't. I can't remember. Were like any storylines uh, involving any, any major characters back then, before that, that were you know like, well, let, how about we really mess with the universe and take out one of our big guns?
2: Yeah, and you know, in a way that we might have been able to convince readers that this was permanent. Just remember, we we were they had replaced Green Lantern and Flash and and uh, Green Arrow, uh, you know, all around this time period, and it was like, you know, hey, maybe they're actually going to replace Bruce Wayne that. That was the idea. Denny Denny hated the idea of doing a stunt. And that's what he called them stunts, hmm. where you did something to up sales for a few months, and then everything went back to normal. He says, "Let's really make this a, an epic event, a story where it's it's it was worth doing as a story. It wasn't are not just doing it for the sheer uh, purpose of exploitation. That we're actually working all our storytelling muscles to tell a story that the readers are really going to love." And, you know, I think he succeeded, you know, and he was, you know, he was there whipping us along, you know, you know, do your best work and everything else. But we, 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 Alan and Doug and I were so into it. You know, we didn't need much encouragement.
0: Though, it did get compared to a stunt, uh, especially retroactively. Um, how did you guys feel when critics did say that about it?
2: Well, they were wrong because, yeah. you know, retroactively looking back, yeah, you might look at it that way, but coming out month by month every single book you know, telling the same story you know, whether you knew they were telling the same story or not. In fact, when you read it retroactively it works even better because you can see what we were setting up the whole time you can see, oh, this scene is for this purpose, you know And um, but you know, it's comic book critics. I I put all comic book critics into one category I should have written this (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah when you say epic i mean it, it i have a note here that it was the first time that all the batman titles shared the same narrative over like what a whole year it was more than a year
2: it was you know yeah. really when you get into it and the aftermath and everything else it was a full two years of comics it's a it is a boatload of comics and uh and everything and we even did specials you know we did we didn't have enough room in all the monthlies and we were creating more monthlies you know we had to expand at the specials and showcase and batman chronicles and all that stuff
1: so when when you when you started off did you think it was gonna be big or did you think oh my god what am i in what am i getting into it um it just seemed like so
2: much f- fun ah, because okay. all the all the really hard work had been done. We had all these dramatic high points to work toward. And we, and, and we all shared them. You know, nobody got all the best scenes. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed like, boy, I can't wait to write this. And, you know, Doug and Alan and I, we, we, we there were three deadline monsters. You know, we slayed deadlines. So <laughs> we, we, we were never waiting on the next guy. Cause we, we had to wait until we saw what the guy before us had done. Mm-hmm. But I, I never had to wait. I just stuck with the schedule that they put out. And uh, the scripts came in just as I needed them. And, you know, I got them their scripts just as they needed them. And we were all one big happy family. It, it, it really worked well because we all wanted to make this work. I, now, did I think it was going to work the way it worked? No. And, you know, and Denny revealed to me years later that it was the last comics project from D.C. that was profitable sheerly as a comic book pro, um, mm. uh, project. Oh. You know, it didn't need a movie or a cartoon or toys made from it. It made, made, the comic was actually profitable.
0: Cool. Is there, is there a small part of you that ever, that hoped, uh, Bruce Wayne would never come back and it would just, you know, Dick Grayson would take over permanently?
2: No, because you had to listen to all of the artists moaning constantly. I'm a, it's not the real Batman. And, man, that outfit, they all, they all hated it. because It's not the real Batman. It doesn't even look like the real Batman. So, I mean, Graham, Graham will still, you know, you poke him in the ribs he'll, or wake him up in the middle of the night, he'll, he'll tell you uh, <laughs> how much he hated not drawing the real Batman.
0: Yeah. And then uh, – so – I was. That's the other one I wanted to ask you about, uh, after DC, you worked at CrossGen Comics? Yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard of CrossGen before.
2: They were down here in uh, Tampa, Florida, which is why I'm in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they invited me down just before the housing bubble burst, and uh, oh. um, it was um, it was a brainchild of a, of a guy named Mark Alessi, who I, who I still see once in a while, and uh, his idea was to improve... Uh, how comics look, um, make them more professional looking or on a like a European level. I don't know if that European level is this idea, but in my mind, he was bringing them up to a European level of quality and he felt to do that, he wanted, like an animation studio, all of his artists and writers on, on site. So we actually had a place we went to every day, this really nice building in an industrial park and everybody was there. And uh, we, we had... Everything we needed. We had computers and printers and, you know, fabulous art tables and a cafeteria. You know, it was like everything. It was it was great. And uh, it lasted, you know, two, three years for me. And uh, I loved every minute of it. But uh, it was a bad time. We were a little ahead of our time on things like digital comics and things like that. And we just, uh, as I said to Mark, we were rowing for shore and we didn't make it. We didn't make mm. it to the surf. So, uh, Disney ended up buying the company for peanuts. I think they rolled up the carpet and took it away. Even.
0: <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so all that stuff belongs to Disney, you know, and, and that's the end of it. But I, I loved all the work I did. I loved all the friends I made. Uh, it, was, it was a tremendous working environment. And nobody will ever do it again.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe some of those characters will end up in the MCU.
2: I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> And
1: here comes the Z team.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's the new, new,
0: new universe. (laughs) Um, and then of course, besides comic work, you, you write, uh, novels as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. When I left cross gen, uh, I wasn't welcome back at DC or, and I wasn't welcome back at Marvel. And, uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on the independent market then. So, uh, the only people that were really hiring me on a regular basis was Bongo to write Simpsons comics, which I loved mm. writing. And uh, they, gave, they gave me a lot of work, but not enough. So um, I turned to writing novels because I didn't need a gatekeeper. And most importantly, I didn't need an artist. <laughs> I could just write you know, at my own speed and publish them myself and, and reap the rewards. Uh, and you know that worked out for me. You know, I never wanted to be a prose writer. I'm a comic book writer. I never wanted to be anything else. Right. I'm not one of those guys like I've got my screenplay here. No, I was like comic books. I love writing comic books. Prose is okay. I, I like it. I'm more comfortable with it now. But it's it's not my uh, it's not what God put me on earth to do.
0: Right. But now isn't one of your uh, characters being turned into a TV series? Yeah.
2: Um, uh, Sylvester Stallone's Balbella
0: Productions
2: is turning uh, Levon. Cade into a uh, television series. It'll either be for premium cable or basic cable. They promised me they will not go to the networks, for which I was grateful. So, okay. so it'll it'll stay just as violent and bloodthirsty and nihilistic as I wrote in the novels, and and know. Stallone, I, he makes me call him Sly. Sly, Sly? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I was always Sir and Mr. Stallone. Oh, no, call me Sly. Okay, okay, I'll go. you know, uh, so he, you know, I, it's in, it couldn't be in better hands. And he totally understands the property and, well, hell, this guy understands how to make an action movie. So.
0: Cool. I mean, how, like, I, how did that even come about? How did you, did he well, just read the book and like it and, and contact you or? Well, I, I
2: did a, I did an Expendables prequel comic for Dynamite, and okay. uh, I did it off of his screenplay because you know, the movie wasn't going to be out for another year. And um, after it came out, like, and then the movie came out, I get this phone call, and I said, would you hold for a call from Sylvester Stallone? And I said, well, <laughs> which one of my friends is this? Right? And, <laughs> but it was him. And he told me how much he liked it, and how much I understood the Expendables based on his screenplay, not how the movie came out, but based on what he was trying to do with the movie, which is vastly different. And he uh, he really liked it, and would I like to talk to him about Expendables too? Uh, which we did, and he had me he had the studio fly me out for a production meeting. It didn't go anywhere, but I you know I got to be in a production meeting with him. And and we sort of developed a relationship, and we were at the production meeting, finishing each other's sentences. And um, so, uh, you know, he started looking at my other work, and he really liked he really liked both of my novel series. He liked Bad Times. Was he suggested to Millennium they make it to a film series, which they didn't. They didn't want to. And he and he really liked von Cade. And so, you know, since that time, he's been trying to find homes for them and then when he got this production deal and he's you know he's got his own fully financed production company with distribution everything's set he's in creative control this was one of the first projects he wanted to do awesome yeah it Brilliant. is i mean that's it's really cool the guy is just an awesome you I mean people in hollywood they forget you the minute they hang up the phone but not him not him man he he found me work for Lionsgate, writing web content and stuff like that. You know, it was a period when I really needed paying work, and, and he found me work. He, he he just simply never forgot about it.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy, really good guy. I've heard that about him, so yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Um, so, what is your like? What are your hopes for the series? Like, you know, I mean, you know, I'm just saying. Like, you want to do? Would Would you be happy if it was like ten episode? Arcs for, per book, or like what? Do oh you, yeah, what do you... yeah, that that'd be fine with me. You know, it's like well, the key to these things is as long as it
2: goes five seasons. you know? <laughs> <laughs> So if it goes five seasons, my great grandchildren will be sent to college. Exactly. And <laughs> nice. you know, once you start going global with the stuff, I mean, Pete, you have no idea how much money there is in TV. I mean, everybody talks about movies and all the money. There is so freaking much money in TV. It's crazy because the stuff runs forever because. You might do a show and do five seasons, and ten years later, it becomes the number one show in, you know, Turkey. You know, you don't know.
1: Well, you don't and, even need five years for it to go to syndication. I mean,
2: just no, yeah, exactly. But you know, everybody shoots for five years because you know it really starts piling up then. But you know, I mean, I mean, you know, I always use the example of Married with Children, which is a show nobody even thinks about anymore. But that show went on to run in Russia till today. I mean, they, yeah. they in Russia, made in Russia. So they had to make new episodes because the show went on after, you know, we had canceled it here. So they wrote, they started writing their own stories, and and it's in a lot of different countries in its own versions, and all that money comes back to the people who created it, you know, and, and that's billions of dollars, billions of dollars.
0: Well, uh, I hope I hope uh, what ha- what happened to Jim Butcher and the Dresden Files. Doesn't happen oh, to you.
2: don't even mention that. <laughs> I don't think so. Because, I, like I said, I'm in good hands. I mean, um, we're on such of the same page about yeah. what this should be like and, and everything else. I mean, I, I have an understanding of how Sly's mind works on this stuff. And, well, and, and getting to know him as well and finding out from, not from him, but from people around him, what he contributed to all the movies he was in. You know, yeah. just by saying, well, what if we did this and what if we did that? This guy just has an understanding of what audiences want to see.
0: Wow, that that that's really cool. And it just shows, I think, um, for people out there who, who are listening who might want to be writers, that, like, just because, you know, you work in comics and you love that and you have a down period doesn't mean you stop writing, you know, and... You were well, no, and, you know,
2: I, I, and, yeah, I mean, I'm just a compulsive writer. I mean, every you know, every writer can't do that. You know, not to no, say wrong with that, but I just can't stop myself. <laughs> 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 Got to come out somewhere, otherwise, I'll, you know, I'll be up in a tower with a rifle or something like this. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I hope this doesn't come back to bite me. Eighty-year-old uh, that, <laughs> founded a <laughs> <laughs> 80-year-old found tower after. <laughs> Years years earlier in a podcast, you mentioned you might do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, so <let's>, uh... <laughs> yeah, took the wind out of your sails with that one. Okay,
0: <laughs> um, not that hard to do. So um... what is what, what is a piece of advice that you give young people who talk to you who want to you know start writing?
2: Well, it, it you know, um, don't think that you have to be taught how to write. Uh, you either can or you can't, and almost everyone can. Everyone can tell a story. I mean, if you can tell somebody a Shaggy Dog joke, you know, story, you know, you can tell a story. And uh, my good buddy Gary Quapis always says, you know, if you've got a burning desire to tell a story, uh, just tell it and don't worry about form or. You know spelling. He certainly doesn't when he writes. He's the worst speller I have ever met. But he's a great writer. You know, he he knows how comics work and he does a great story. So don't worry about any of that, and and just go for it. Uh, you know that's what editors are for. And uh, you know just write and write and write and write. You know, uh, and don't don't listen to like naysayers. I mean, uh, writers are the worst like to hang out with. I don't hang out with a lot of writers because. <laughs> They'll, they are all. They all think they're being sly by saying stuff that, you know, that make you think too hard about your writing. Um, it's all gamesmanship, and uh, I reject all of that. I mean, I, things like the, all the Joseph Campbell power of myth stuff. Uh, I was like, no, reject all of that. Don't, don't go near any of that stuff. It, it'll the hero's journey. That stuff, it'll make you crazy. That those books are written so that Hollywood producers think they understand what story writing is like. Um, but for real writers, you, you just you, you just balls to the wall. You are just throwing crap out there until something sticks. I mean, you just got to go wild. The idea that there's only a few plot lines in existence and every story has to follow the same progression—that's just pure BS.
1: So I guess that's why Pirates of the Cretaceous is so weird. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you talk about throwing things together at the wall until they stick.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I write. You know, Pirates of Cretaceous, It's my sixth book in my bad time series. It's a time travel series, and I finally get to dinosaurs because you know <laughs> you can't can't write a time travel series and not get the dinosaurs. Of
1: course not. No.
2: <laughs> Especially since the series is kind of my toy soldier fantasies about you know, military action in history and stuff like that. So
1: There's only two things you do with time travel. You go back and kill Hitler, and no. then and then you go see the dinosaurs. It's basically it. I,
0: <laughs> I, I've, I've
2: avoided the Nazi thing because, you know, that's been done to death. Uh, but you can't do dinosaurs to death. I'm sorry. You could make six dinosaur movies a year, and as long as they were decent, people would go see them.
1: Well, I mean, given they did, like, seven Transformers movies and people kept watching, then... The- <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: yeah, 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 right. right. <laughs> And and they have, like, uh, what, uh, a 1% of the audience that dinosaurs have. Everybody loves dinosaurs. And if you don't love dinosaurs, I, you know, I don't even want to know you. So, <laughs> yeah, La- Larry Hama told me a little, like, a couple of years ago, when he was a kid. His, his intro line when he met new kids was to say, do you like dinosaurs? And if they did, th- he could be their friend. If they didn't, he couldn't be their friend.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, that's... That's pretty cool. I said I think I had that same criteria. I just didn't come out and ask it. <laughs> I can't.
0: I, I don't know. if I've ever met a kid who didn't like dinosaurs in some way or another. No, no, because there's
2: everything to love about them. Yes, they're they're dangerous and scary, and they don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> well,
2: I kind of right. I kind of deal with that in Pirates of the Cretaceous. Why you couldn't bring dinosaurs back now? It just wouldn't, you know, they couldn't live because the Earth um, something.
0: All right, well, since John brought it up, uh, book six is out or out for pre-order it's
2: right It's It's for pre-order on Kindle. It'll be available for pre-order on paperback probably next week, and uh, it comes out the end of the month.
0: Oh, okay, cool. Um, all right, so I'm going to ask a dangerous question. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> we, we, we alluded to it a little bit. We didn't really – we talked about it. Um, what did you th- – let's start with, you know uh, – Dark Knight Rises. What did you think of the movie and the portrayal of Bane in that movie? Wow, I've never been asked this
2: before. And his voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: it, and do it in his voice. No, I can't, I can't.
2: The only thing, the only line I can do in his voice. You know how, if you do an impression, sometimes you can only do one sentence. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you can't do the whole. Thing. Some guy took Dark Knight Rises, seen the trailer, and and all of Bane's dialogue, he, he read dubbed and, and all Bane talks about is fiber. Getting enough fiber in your diet. <laughs> so the only Bane line I can do is, so what did you have for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> you Which know, is in, in the movie, or it's nothing I wrote. So... I, was that you know, what you
1: guys envisioned of him sounding like when, when you got no, the character? No, I, no,
2: I, I, I thought in the first cartoon he was in. Henry Silva nailed it. because Henry Silva was awesome, and Danny Trejo did a great job. Oh, Danny Trejo, of course. He's, he's, you know, he's Hispanic. You know, I mean, he's got to be Hispanic, and he uh, sounds. He sounds mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Danny Trey, oh my God, you wouldn't want to hear that voice coming out of the dark at the foot of your bed at midnight. That's for damn sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it the, I, you know, Dark Knight Rises was good because it erased the horrible Bane impression uh, made in Batman and Robin. So, <laughs> uh, and and they, they presented him as a chess player and a mastermind, but you know, in the end, he wasn't the ultimate mastermind, which was a little disappointing for me. And, uh, but, you know, and they made him a household name. I mean, he was popular with comic fans, but now he's popular with everybody knows who he is, which is, which is astounding to me. And, um, and now they'll, he's permanently part of the canon. There's no getting rid of him. Uh, and he'll be around again. Maybe next time they'll, they'll make it something closer to the comic book world. Which would make yeah.
1: him a lot, they, they, that's, going to be hard to write because I mean, you, you the way the character is formed, he is, like you said, he is like a perfect anti-Batman, I guess, or he's oh. just, I mean, he's his mental and physical equal or superior in some cases. So if they did write him true to form, it would be quite, a. I mean, it would be an awesome movie if they wrote it properly.
2: Well, if they, if they can make him as frightening as they make him in the video games. Yeah. Because I mean, I don't play video games, but people that I know say it's actually the only time they've been scared in a video game is when Bane shows up. So,
0: yeah, I hate the Bane levels. Yeah,
2: everybody (laughs) does. Everybody
0: does that, and the Killer Croc level in the first one. But
2: (laughs) yeah, Killer Croc. See, that's a character I don't know how they would do in a movie because he's kind of out there. It's science. He's the kind of character Denny hated because it was science fiction.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So now the other one would be there's been three movies made with this character and, of course, uh, two seasons of a uh, show on Netflix. What is your favorite portrayal uh, cinematically of Punisher?
2: Um, I You know, I haven't seen the show because it's kind of painful to watch these shows. When you know they're not sending you any money for your story ideas, uh, mm-hmm. but John Berthold's perfect casting. I like jo- Thomas Jane as the Punisher, but th- I didn't like the movie. I, they got it all wrong. So uh, you know, people are telling me the second season they kind of get it right. They get away from the weepy stuff, get back into action. So and turning more into the force of nature that he should be. So I don't know. You know, uh, I you know that's my opinion. I, you know, as far as I know, he hasn't. Um, Correctly, but 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 I've you know been I had some discussions with Marvel a few months ago, straightened out some of the money stuff. So maybe I'll watch. I'll watch the <laughs> you know, it's it's difficult to sit and watch something, and you're like, oh my god, they stole this from me and that from me. You know, uh, when I saw the Thomas Jane version, the entire popsicle sequence is you know it's like Johnny Ramita Junior. Storyboarded it. And I provided the dialogue. I mean, they just—they just took it right from the comic. And my only reward was the audience enjoyed it so much; they—they they, they were laughing so hard at that scene. I thought, well, that's—that's that's all I'm getting out of this.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> is, is it hard to deal with getting residuals or, or paid for the for your ideas? Because it sounds it, like you're struggling with that on several fronts. And I've, we, of course, we've heard that from a lot of other creators.
2: Well, um, it, it used to be easy. Because you, you had a relationship with the guy in charge, you know. Um, I mean, back when it was you know DeFalco running Marvel or Levitz running DC, you just called them on the phone. You know, they knew who you were, you know, because you had lunch with them or seen them around the offices. And uh, I remember on Batman Begins, the uh, does it come in black scene where he picks out the Batmobile. Uh, I called Paul Levitz uh, at the urging of my editors. They said, you know, call him, call him, call him. I said, called them and said, you know, I'm the first guy to write that scene because up till me, they always had Batman and Alfred build the Battlefield. Hmm. And, and even when I was a kid, I thought, that's a step too far. I mean, he's the world's greatest detective and world's greatest fighter and world's greatest – and he's an automotive engineer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and not and only
1: – pl- an aeronautics engineer. And,
2: yeah, and not only that – he didn't just build a car. He built the greatest car in the world. And it's like, okay, this is a little much. And so, you know, I was the first one to actually have him go to Wayne Tech and look at, you know, military options and say, uh, hey, could I have one of them for home use? And,
0: uh,
2: so Paul said, well, let me take a look at the issue. And then he got back to me like an hour later and He says, we're cutting you a check. So wow. that's how it used to work. Now you got to go through a bunch of people, but – you know, I dealt with someone at Marvel who was pretty high up, and he was really nice about it, and he explained what the deal was on using characters. Because at DC, we had paper on all the characters. I mean, we are legally, they are legally bound to pay us a percentage. Mm-hmm. Marvel's nothing. There's there, there's no paper. It was work for hire, you know, the work for hire agreement was on the back of your checks, you know. You were giving this stuff away. But, uh, you know, they are changing their tune on that and offering for the the TV stuff anyway. You know flat rate deals where they pay you for every appearance so that's nice i mean I, I, you know that's fair enough
1: do you think that's happening because there's so many independents now coming up and you can't really get good talent if you're going to treat the talent so badly and it, that gets around
2: well i don't think they're ever interested in having me work for them again so that's not an impetus for them uh i think basically uh they don't need the bad pr of a bunch of people complaining you know uh this character made you know he was in a billion dollar movie and i got, i got nothing you know hmm. and i'm living i'm living in a refrigerator box you know they don't they don't need that kind of stuff so uh, so for for the for the the change they find amongst the sofa cushions <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> compared to what this stuff makes you know they they can fire off checks to 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 us you know and it, it doesn't really it doesn't hurt their bottom line at all you know hmm. i'm sure there's some you know accountant at you know disney crying you know why do we have to write this check you know because every penny counts but you know let's face it I mean the the movies have made what 14 15 billion dollars so they got they got some
0: yeah 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 they made their money back off of buying Marvel it oh, be yeah. nice
1: It'd be nice to think that maybe they do it out because it's the right thing rather than because, hey, we got some – I found some cushions. I'll just hand it over.
2: Well, there's always people like that, but then there's always the other people who go, ah, we don't owe them anything. <laughs> they were lucky to get jobs. <laughs> so, you know, you gotta you got to get past that guy. You know, the guy that says, no, I don't think they, they're owed anything. And then you also got to figure out, you know, how much can we give them that they won't think this is the beginning and, and keep coming back for more. <laughs> Right, hmm. um, like, well, if, you know, if you gave me this much, why couldn't you give me five times as much, you know, um, and start that nonsense? But comic book creators are a cowardly lot, so <laughs> we'll just we'll just take what they give us and slink away, go buy more books.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, you're, you're reminding me of um, uh, one of my favorite. Uh, Creators, artist, uh, Rich Buckler. Yeah. Um, and I remember when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. premiered and they used Deathlock on the show. And I used to talk to him every time I saw him at a convention. And I, you know, I went up to him. I was like, yeah, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, so, so, uh, they're using Deathlock on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Like, did they, did they talk to you at all about it or, or, you know, what's, uh, or, or anything like that. And he's like, no, I'm just happy to see my character being used. And that, you know, that was it. And, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. And that's back when there was no money, you know, everybody, right. was you know, there was no money. Cause they were, that's yeah. back when they were scrappling, trying to figure out how to make this stuff for someone.
0: Yeah. It's a shame. Cause he was one of the nicest guys, uh, you know, in comics that i ever met. Yeah. Present, present company excluded. Oh, well, that,
2: <laughs> no, rich, rich, rich was, uh, he was a real devotee. I mean, uh, he was part of the brotherhood, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a shame because, you know, he passed away and yeah. um, now mm-hmm. he won't be able to, you know, reap any rewards from this. But
2: Yeah, well, so many of these guys. I mean, these franchises have been around so long that most of the early creators are gone. It's only yeah. left, you know, particularly on the D.C. side, you know, since stuff's like 75 years old.
0: I know. You're lucky you created babe.
2: Yeah, yeah, I got in late <laughs> in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, could, he, could, he couldn't have come at a better time. You know, it was at the dawn of the action figure craze and all that stuff. So.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so, actually, we've been, we're we getting close to an hour. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that uh,
1: uh, well, we the, always the,
0: ask. What?
1: Before you ask that, I have a, okay. I have a question. Um, it, you know, we, we, I don't know why, but I figured I'd do research before we talk to you. <laughs> I, 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 my, you know, my hand slipped and hit the keyboard and I don't know. So, um, I accidentally Googled, uh, but, uh, you have like a site, Dixonverse.net. Uh, it's and,
2: ChuckDixon.net.
1: Uh, uh, Dixonverse.net's
2: gone. ChuckDixon.net. Is
1: really I was going to awesome. say, because I went to Dixonverse.net. Okay. Let's see some comic book. Goodness. On electricians and providing amazing home services. I don't know what the.
2: Wow. Wow. So, that, so that's who got it. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but but no.
1: there's a little blurb on the side that says Welcome to Dixonverse, online home of writer Chuck Dixon can be looking at dixonverse.net which is what I'm looking at doesn't look like the home for you oh, <laughs> unless you no. unless you're doing electrician work now
2: <laughs> Oh no, no no god you don't want me doing that um, yeah uh, yeah, you want your house burnt down you might want me to do it uh, yeah yeah chuckdixon.net you can find me I, I, I post a bunch and everything from dixonverse is there so
1: that looks better mm. chuckdixon.net
2: yeah. uh oh Okay.
0: Did that take you to a porn site? Oh, wait. No. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. My name there is uh, Bolt Upright. So, so yeah.
0: So now I'm going to ask you a serious question. Yes. Uh, one of the questions we normally, uh, you know, wrap up on is how do you measure success? Um, wow, um,
2: I, well, I mean, it's corny, but if you love your work, if you look forward to getting up every day and doing the job, you know, that you're doing, that's success because I, you know, I've written, you know, over 40,000 pages of comics, but it doesn't feel like it, it was never work, so, and I've been very, succ- I did everything in comics that I wanted to do, you know, and, uh, I've, you know, been blessed. So it's uh, that's to me that's success. Well,
0: cool. that that's a good answer. Um, I don't get up and enjoy my day job, so I guess I'm not successful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you do this, so there you go.
0: Well, there you go. I enjoy this. Yeah, yeah, and all, and, and all the money you reap from this. Right? <laughs> oh yes,
1: yes, yes. Okay, and we're back again.
0: <laughs> back. There's back to sad. There's, <laughs> There's more money in podcasts than independent comics. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, yeah,
2: yeah. I I know some guys that do podcasts, and they tell me what they make. I'm like, what? I got to do a podcast. Do <laughs>
0: uh, so you have any um, other projects coming up that you want people to keep an eye out for?
2: Uh, well, I'm currently writing Avalon for Archaven. It's a superhero series. Um I'm doing I, – I think we're still in the middle of uh, a Van Helsing miniseries from Zenoscope. And uh, I'm on my fifth year of a weekly comic strip for dot com, herb.com, called Pellucidar. Gary Quapas and I have been doing it for over five years
1: now. Is, every, is that the one week. where men – when men were men and women were hot? Is, um, that,
2: is that that one? No, no. That's that's Ravage. Um, uh it's Ravage, Ravage, Kill All Men for cautionary uh, Comics. Oh, that's okay. that's Belusar is like a weekly strip. It, it, it comes out, like, I think every Monday uh, from herb.com. So mm-hmm. it, it has a lot of subscribers, but it's like comics best kept secret.
0: So <laughs> most, most people don't know about it. Cool. Uh, but that's not your work, so don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Um, where can people find you online
2: Uh, well chuckdixon.net I'm on Facebook and then I got one of those Facebook author pages as well and uh, you know I'm updating them constantly and they can always just put my name in on Amazon and put something in their cart (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's appreciated
0: (laughs) cool Cool. And, um, I mean, sure you don't have any more information than what you already told us, but, uh, um, is there any idea on when, uh, oh shoot, my mind just went blank. Sorry. The show will be on, uh, TV, I guess, cause you haven't found a home for it yet. So.
2: No, uh, no, we haven't found a home for it. I mean, they, I mean, you know, there are people on salary working on it. I mean, they've got a showrunner and they're out scouting locations and there's someone writing the first scripts. So, um, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, yeah, it's all up to when does it find a home. That, that's the thing. I mean, even after they say yes in Hollywood, it's it's another six months to a year before you actually right. see anything. Nothing. But things are happening. I'm in contact with – I finally asked Sly to give me, like, a number two guy so I could pester him with questions. And uh, he gave me this guy uh, to talk to, and, and he keeps me updated as to where they are. But I'm not one of those, is something happening today? Right, it's not, right, right. You know, it's every couple of months or something, yeah, is there anything you need or, you know, just – anything to tell me because everything they tell me that I can use to promote the books is good for me too. <laughs> so I'm, right. I'm dying. I'm dying for first photos because then, hey, I can sell some books with this.
0: Right. I'm going to say, so so then once you have more information or maybe when they announce, make announcements, maybe you can come back on and talk about it.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I'll, I'll, cool. I'll know more. <laughs> I won't be able to say, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know that. No, stop asking me that. I don't know. Cool.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, this was fun. I enjoyed it. Cool. And to all of our listeners, as always, thanks for listening. Don't let your keep you caught in the door. Have a good week.